Mike read to us Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 23. This passage of scripture that Mike read tells us that the healing of the entire creation will come about as a result of the redemption of humankind. That's very important. This remarkable passage Mike read, the healing of the entire creation will come with the redemption of humanity. Now this brings us right to the heart of the Christian understanding of our world. The one and only God, this mysterious, eternal, uncreated God who has no beginning and no end, this all-powerful person-like being is the creator. And he created the universe with all of its beauty and complexity and potential. And when you read the Bible, you see in its very first pages that the high point of creation is the making of humankind. The climax of God's creative power is the making of humans. And in the Bible, a man or a woman is a creature designed and made by God, part of the world. Humans are creatures. That means there's a creator and they were created. They're different from this God. But... Somehow, we are like God. Now, however you calibrate God's activity of creation with scientific theories about creation, there are multiple ways to do that. However you do it, however you calibrate scientific theories of creation with God's activity of creation, if you are faithful to what the Bible has to say about humans... You cannot think of humans as merely random products of time and chance. Now, it is possible to have a view of evolution that is a theistic view of evolution, that sees God working through evolution, and humans are not a product of time and chance. It's also very possible to believe in evolution in such a way that you believe humans are a product of time and chance. Now, however you work with that, and that's a discussion for another time, you've got to be very careful that the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is not how God made it, but that humans are unique. They are not a product of time and chance, and that humankind, among all of the creatures that God created... Humankind is personal. God addresses only humans. God speaks to and addresses only men and women. They enjoy a unique personal relationship with the Creator. This, is, this issue that humans enjoy a personal relationship with the Creator. This is why one of the greatest church of the church fathers, Augustine, this is why Augustine observed that our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. That's something unique about us. Dogs aren't running around experiencing existential crises until they find their identity in Christ. 
Humans are unique. We were made for this relationship with God in a unique way. And until we are at rest in God, we are restless. Now this relationship between the creating God and his, humans, and his human creations is stunningly pictured in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8. Where we see that God is in the habit of walking in the garden in the cool of the day, meeting with man and woman, with Adam and Eve. You see, humankind is made for an intimate relationship with God. So, God walks with Adam. He walks with Eve regularly in this huge garden that he made for them and gave to them. And what is he doing on these walks? It appears from the Bible that he's discussing how things are going in their gardening. How the plants are thriving under their cultivation. How the animals are getting along. He's discussing with them their work on his behalf as stewards of this house that he's made for them. In Genesis Chapter 1, verse 26 and 28, we're told that God created humans in His image, in His likeness. Though God is infinite, we are finite. Though God is the creator, we are the creature. And there is something fundamentally similar between us and God. We are not God, but there is a striking similarity. And the Bible teaches that the similarity between humans and God is our vocation. Our role on the earth. That is the similarity between us and God. In Genesis 1.28, God commands humans to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. That was God's job. That alone He gives to humans. And humans alone among his whole creation has this vocation, this work to do that is the same as God's work before humans show up. To form, to fill, to rule, to subdue. The fundamental similarity between God and humanity is humankind's unique vocation. Our calling, our commissioning by God himself. Under God, we are to rule creation. Our special role is to serve the Creator by drawing out of creation all of its potential. Nurturing and cultivating it into its glorious potential. Now as human beings, we have huge freedom and responsibility. Wherever your job takes you, that is your job. As a teacher, your job is to discover the potential of humankind to be educated and then to educate with the grain of the universe. If you're a businessman, God put business as a potentiality within his creation and your job is to partner with God in the flourishing of a community through vibrant, healthy, sustainable businesses. And you just go on down through the line. Our job is to work under God's authority 
over the earth, drawing out of the earth its massive potential. And so what you need to do is discover your gifts and your abilities, how they line up with the needs of the world and the priorities of God, and then every day go out into your vocation as an act of obedience to the Father, drawing the whole world into the passion. That's what work is. That is unique to human beings. And there is huge freedom and responsibility in how we do this. There's accountability. We're put here to develop the hidden potentials of creation. That's where the Bible begins. But as we saw last week, this beautiful beginning gets corrupted and twisted and torqued by evil. We don't know where evil comes from. It's there. And humans buy into it. And between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 11, there is a triple play of evil. So that by the time we get to the end of Genesis 11, we read for the first time, a woman is infertile. Genesis 11.30, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. A double statement of the effect of evil on God's fecund creation is blight and barrenness. History is played out when you get to the end of Genesis 11. It's done. It's barren. There is nowhere else to go. There is no foreseeable future. It is hopeless. It is dire. God created this beautiful life-giving world, but evil has darkened and neutered and sterilized it. To read the Bible correctly, you've got to grasp the the backbone of script, the logic of the Bible. Look, the Bible is a single story. It's a single, sprawling, capacious narrative. And if you don't learn to read it like you read John Grisham and you, st- and you treat it like an encyclopedia where you dip in and find a verse for this and a verse for that, like vitamins on your shelf, then you're going to misread the Bible. You've got to understand whatever you're reading, where it fits in the drama of Scripture. The drama of Scripture is God dealing with evil. And you get to the end of chapter 11, evil has had its way. And then something happens. The good, all-powerful, life-giving creator refuses to let barrenness be the final word. In Genesis chapter 12, we have the hinge of the Bible. The small hinge that the whole door of Scripture swings on. In Genesis 12, God refuses for barrenness to have the last word. He refuses to let go of his creation. He refuses to surrender his creation to its brokenness, to evil. He steps in to heal creation, to defeat evil. And how does he do this? By calling Abraham to himself. Now look, if you abstract Abraham's call from the root narrative, you don't get that. God is healing the world by entering into a relationship with one person. Now, that might not be the way you would heal the world, but guess what? You're not the creator. You're not the author. You don't get to write out the plot, the drama of history. This is how the Christian view, this is what Christianity claims the creator has done to solve the problem of evil. He calls Abraham, get this, to be a new Adam. 
And that makes sense according to the logic, right? If humans were the high point of creation, if humans' job, if our job was to heal creation, then of course he's going to use humans. If our job was to draw out of creation its potential, then he has all along planned on using, not only is God refusing to give up on creation, he is refusing to surrender humans away from their original job, which is to be the Lord of creation. That's why God's solving of evil is the calling of a man. Now, he calls Abraham to be a new Adam. Now, last week I began the sermon by saying that the story of the Bible is how God is dealing with evil. And this week I began by saying God is dealing with evil. He is healing creation through the redemption of humanity. Romans chapter 8. This is why Genesis 12 is the hinge. The promise that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 12... The promises he gives Abraham in Genesis 12 are all a repeat of the commands he gave to Adam. But no longer can they be commands because humans are incapable because we're affected by sin. So now they become promises. But when you read it as a story, you see that Abraham is not just out of the blue. He's dealing with with the sin of Adam. That God's work in the life of Abraham is getting the human project back on track and that is how God is healing the world. In other words, God is at work in Abraham and his descendants to form them into true humans. Adam was made to be human. His humanity was corrupted. He was a part of the corruption of creation. So God comes to Abraham, he calls him to be a new Adam, which means a true human. Now, when the stewards of Eden are themselves transformed into who they are made to be, Romans 8 says the cosmos will be set free from its bondage to decay and it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, like I've said many times before, if you think the Rocky Mountains are breathtaking now, wait until God heals humanity and they are set free from decay. If you think the leaves on the trees in the valley are beautiful in the fall now, you just wait until all is made new and death is no more and then you and I will see beauty that the greatest beauty you've ever seen is a mere hint That's Romans 8. And it all depends on true humanity. Now, God's answer to evil is true humanity. But humankind is so deeply infected with evil that there's a problem. What do you do when the solution is a part of the problem? Abraham's a part of the problem. So yes, God chooses Abraham and he chooses his descendants to heal the world. But Abraham, to be quite honest, is the greatest threat to the whole solution. The very solution is the threat to the solution. Now this is, what, this is why after Abraham's call where he performs admirably and obeys God and goes out in faith, in the very next story, he's pimping out his wife. And you're supposed to ask, as any good reader of John Gresham would, holy cow, how does this work? How can the solution that is deeply infected also be the problem? If you saw the movie Noah, that's the central tension that the movie captures. How will Noah 
be a solution to the world's problems when the evil is in him. Now, ever since I said that last week, I got all kinds of questions from people who hated the movie. I'm sorry, you're not bad, you're just wrong, but I still like you. Now, this is key to reading the life of Abraham. Abraham's the solution, his descendants are the solution, but they're the problem too. So what we see in the life of Abraham is two things. It is the founder of God's people who will heal the creation ultimately through the birth of Jesus Christ, who is the son of Abraham, who is God incarnate. And number two, when we look at the story of Abraham, we not only see, number one, God's steadfast faithfulness to pull this off through Abraham and his descendants. We, number two, see the formation of Abraham into a true human. You've got to understand that the life of Abraham is about two things, founding and forming. God is founding his solution and he is forming his solution into true humanity. Becoming a true human, you see, doesn't happen automatically. What we see in the life of Abraham is that his first step to becoming truly human is faith in God. We saw that last week, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. God works in Abraham's life and he steps out in faith. He trusts God. That is the first step. But we immediately are told that step is not enough. Initial trust in God does not automatically get rid of all of your bad habits. Getting saved does not deliver you from your evil. Not in this kind of way. It delivers you in a profound way, but there is still the long, hard work of being formed into a true human. And that's the rest of Abraham's life. Abraham's life stretches out, the way we're told in the Bible, over 11 trials where he is growing, failing, Succeeding, failing, succeeding, but moving more and more so that by the end of his life, he is a remarkable human being. But we've got, see, what I'm saying is that we start our journey into true humanity in faith. But we've got to add to our faith. Faith opens the gates of the Kentucky Derby, but the horse still has to run the race. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us out of His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. That could be a summary of Genesis 12, 1 to 9. It's a summary of our own journey of faith. But get what it says next. So that through them, through the promises of God to Abraham, to us, We may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. That's 2 Peter chapter 1. You start in faith, and then you look at the life of Abraham, and you see it pictured, or you read 2 Peter 1, and you see it explicitly named. You start in faith, and then you make every effort. You begin the hard work of growing in the grace of God. Now, I'm going to spend the last part of this sermon showing specifically how in this weird event in Egypt, God is forming Abraham, and through the story, the creator, all-powerful God of the universe is speaking to us 
and forming us. Now, first of all, a quick summary of these 11 verses. God commands Abraham to leave his homeland and his family. And he strikes out um, for this promised new land where he's going to have all these descendants and protection. And Abraham's going to be the source of blessing to the whole world. That's Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. Then in verses 4 to 9, Abraham obeys God. He sets off. And when he gets to the land of Canaan, God says, this is it. This is the land where I'll give you the descendants. And then in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, famine strikes Israel. And it's severe. And it drives Abraham to Egypt. Nothing new here. Well-established fact. That the fluctuating rainfall in Canaan has for millennia made it susceptible to food shortages until the advent of modern methods of irrigation. And always, you know where people left when they left Canaan? You know where they went? They went to Egypt because it had the Nile. And the Nile was a more stable source of water, which means it's a more stable source of food. Nothing new here. Famine, he goes where all the other migrants went. He goes to Egypt. And then in verses 11 to 13, even though God has promised Abraham protection, even though Abraham trusted God and encouraged, went out in faith to a land he didn't know, left his people, left his home, left it all, trusting in God, even though God had promised him land and descendants and protection, Abraham does not trust God to protect him in Egypt. And we don't know what's going on there. Maybe Abraham hasn't yet learned that God is bigger than Israel because that was a common view of, of ancient Near Eastern religions. Maybe he doesn't know that God reigns and rules the whole earth and not just Canaan. But for whatever reason, he doesn't trust God. And when he doesn't trust God, when he's afraid, he does what you and I do when we're afraid. He takes matters into his own hands and out of fear for his life, he passes his wife off as a sister. He's willing to risk her honor in order to save his life. And then in verses 14 and 16, we see that Abraham's fears were well founded. Apparently, he had heard what Egypt was like, and indeed, it was like that. And yet, he got way more than he bargained for. Because it wasn't any old person that was attracted to Sarah. Apparently, the Pharaoh's henchmen were always on the prowl for their master, rounding up beautiful women for his harem. Nothing new. Same story happens in Esther, by the way. They see Sarah, they abduct her, they place her in the royal harem, and then God shows up. Verse 17, but the Lord. See, up to verse 17, Abraham was right. And then in verse 17, but God. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah Abram's wife. God intervenes. He rescues Sarah. And this is what our remarkable piece of art on the front of the worship guide depicts. And Pharaoh gets angry. He's mad at Abraham for tricking him. And in a very tense... Look, you've got to read the Bible slow. What was it like for Abraham to be standing in front of the man who now has some sort of likely genital disease as a result of that man's trickery? Knowing what we know about despotic rulers, we know Abraham's life hangs by a thread. And after a very tense, very dangerous interrogation, wonder of wonders, shock to everybody in the palace, 
He's not executed. He's deported. I'll spend the next few minutes pointing out five ways that God is forming Abraham into a true human and through this forming us into true humans. Number one, it's about God's power. God's power. God promised Abraham that God would heal the world through Abraham and his descendants and he would protect him. And as we read these stories, the big question over and over is can this God pull this off? Look at, the, look at what he's facing. Barrenness in Sarah. Barrenness in the land. Angry Pharaoh. He's not only facing all of that, stupid Abraham. These are enormous barriers. He's, he's dealing with a solution that won't trust him. He's dealing with a land that's in famine. He's dealing with a, a 70-year-old woman who's barren. And in the face of all of this, the question is God able to overcome the barrenness of human reality. And despite all of these hurdles, the answer is yes. Yes. God can do it. Abraham saw God act powerfully to keep his promise. And this is a lesson to you and to me. God is able. God is able to save you. God is able to heal. Look, I know you look at this world and you cannot imagine it being healed. And you cannot imagine cities that are just. And politics that is not corrupt. And you can't imagine your own self as truly patient and truly kind and truly generous. God is able to heal creation. He is able to overcome all of these impossible situations. And it is important for your own formation into true humanity to know that. To know that God is more powerful than whatever the dangers and threats are in your life. Number two, in God's formation of Abraham, Abraham has to learn about marriage. Marriage is at the center of this story. For Abraham to become truly human, he has to learn to be a proper husband. Before Abraham can become the founder of the nation of Israel, he's got to learn how to treat his wife. This is a very particular issue right at the heart of this story. For those of us who are, who are married, for those of us who will choose to marry, you cannot choose what marriage means. Marriage is not an accident of evolution. Marriage is unnatural. It is an institution inserted into the development of the world by God. You cannot choose what marriage means. This is what God is saying to Abraham. Abraham, marriage is a very specific thing and you violated it. And that really bothers God. Now look, in our society, you can choose to be married or not. But you cannot choose what marriage means. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. A year ago, I preached a whole series of sermons on marriage. This is one of the most important issues Christians are facing in America today. What is the meaning of marriage? What is its basis? And we see here in the founding stories that God 
owns marriage. That he determines what it means. God is teaching Abraham very specifically that adultery is wicked. It's wicked. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's what he did to Pharaoh. Even though Pharaoh didn't know, God didn't care. He values marriage that much. He judged Pharaoh. He plagued him. Now have you learned this lesson? If you're having sex outside of marriage, it is wicked. It is an affront to the Creator. That is not the way God designed the world to work. And for you to become truly human, you must confess your sin. You must face up to the Creator and say, even if it's like Pharaoh, I didn't know. You must confess. And by the grace of God, you must repent. To become truly human, you must confess and repent sexual sin. It matters. It's serious. The church should be fixated on sexuality. Because it's that key to what it means to be truly human. If you are involved in sexual sin, sex outside of marriage, whether it's in your imagination through pornography, whether it's in a relationship that you're not married, nobody's married, or it's a relationship outside of your marriage, whether it's in your fantasy life or in your real life, if you are involved in it, call on God. Ask for His forgiveness. Because if you don't, you will be less than human. Number three, in God's formation of Abraham, Abraham has to learn how to live by faith. In last week's passage, Abraham takes his first step of faith with an imagination captured by promises. But then he gets into a place where the promises seem to recede. The land is barren. His wife continues in barrenness. He's facing an enemy that could kill him. And in the face of reality... After the initial blush of puppy love, I suspect that Abraham fast on the heels of Genesis 11. I suspect that Abraham wanted greatness. That just like in Genesis 11, the last story about humankind we're told, where they wanted to have a great name for themselves, and they wanted to build a big city, and they wanted to have descendants. I suspect that God capitalized on that, went to Abraham and said, you want all that stuff? And I think Abraham said, yeah, 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 yeah. And God said, okay, I'll give it to you. All you got to do is trust me. And Abraham said, okay, I'll trust you. And he steps out. And then suddenly, he has to put that faith into practice. See, Abraham doesn't emerge from Genesis 11 like Athena from the foam of the ocean, fully formed in all her battle array. He emerges in Genesis 12 as a weak, small beginning of faith. He does it with a large heart and great courage, like so many of us have done. But he still has to be formed. He still has to learn that he can trust God in the brutal reality of life. When you put your trust in God, it is the beginning And then you hit situations. And when we act out of fear, we are not acting out of faith. In the Bible, 
Fear is the opposite of faith. And without faith, the Bible says we cannot please God. And this is what Abraham is learning. Romans 14, 23 tells us that whatever is not of faith is sin. And this is what Abraham is learning. Are you learning that? What, are the, what, what is Egypt and what is the famine in your life? What is it in your life that, that is causing you to really doubt and to take matters into your own hands and to solve problems your own way? Is it lying on your tax return? What is it? What are these moments where you've got to put faith into practice that you really trust that God will protect you? How are you doing with this lesson and the concrete particularities of your own life? Number four, in God's education of Abraham, Abraham experiences God's discipline. Even though God intervenes to protect Sarah and Abraham, and even though Abraham grows wealthy through this fiasco, he still pays a price. In contrast to the scene before, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9, and the next scene, Genesis chapter 13, in contrast to those scenes that are sandwiched around this story, Abraham loses God's voice, builds no altar, brings no blessing to others, and instead of blessing, he brings on himself a rebuke. Now, this is fascinating. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look down in uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 20. A really neat thing... Well, sad for him, but neat on a literary removed if it's not you level. Verse 20, and Abraham and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away. That verb, sent away, it is the exact same verb we find in Genesis 3.23 when God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. Furthermore, the questions that Pharaoh asked... In verse 18, what is this you have done to me? Verbatim, verbatim, quote of God's question, what is this you have done to Adam after he sinned? When you compare God's response to Adam and Eve and you read it, and if you could read it in Hebrew, it's the same words in Pharaoh's mouth. Not only does Abraham lose the voice of God. He gets the rebuke of God through a pagan, wicked king. He's under God's discipline. He failed to trust God. God blessed him anyway, and yet he paid a price. Now listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he has received. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. Look, this is Abraham, right? The reason God rebukes him through Pharaoh, expels him from Egypt, Back into the land of famine. The reason he goes through this is because God is disciplining him. And he does the same to us. And learning to receive God's discipline is a critical element in our own formation. How are you doing? Listen to what it says in verse 12. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. What are you supposed to do when you mess up and God disciplines you? Don't quit. 
Well, see what Abraham does. You know what he's going to do next week? He comes shining through. Next week, he faces an equally threatening situation, and he trusts in God. God disciplines us. Finally, grace. In God's formation of Abraham, not only does God educate Abraham about his power and about marriage and about faith and about discipline, Abraham also is educated in grace. In God's sheer generous grace, throughout all of his mess-ups, Abraham grows wealthy. And it's a sign of God's grace in his life. George Steiner, a profound intellect who is not at all a Christian, but is very attuned to the teachings of the Bible. He says in, in my favorite book he's written, it's called Real Presences, which is about a philosophy of language, not about Jesus. Steiner writes this, The strangeness of evil is only eclipsed by the deeper strangeness of grace. That's, a, that's Genesis 12, 10 to 20. You think that's a weird story? Abraham shucking out his wife so he'd save his own life? The only thing even stranger than that is God's grace. He deserved to be pulverized for that. God is gracious. Do you want to become truly human? Look, being a Christian is not about losing your humanity. It's, it's about becoming maximally human in, 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 your, in your true self. Do you want that? Then look, put your hands into the, this powerful, generous, loving God. Trust in Him. Trust in His Son. That in Jesus we, we see ultimately, finally, the perfect human. And in Jesus' life and death, we are offered access into this relationship with God where he will form us. If you don't trust in God, why not? And if there are barriers to you trusting in Jesus, let's talk about it. Call me. My phone number's on the back. My email's on the back. Talk to a friend. And if you are on the journey of faith, you've already walked through the door, how are you doing at being formed? Are you yielding to the process? Are you growing into what a true human is? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for your word, God. And help us now as we continue to worship you, to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.